0: Colossians 4, as we continue our series and we begin to wrap up our series in Colossians, getting on, getting on with the gospel. So we're just picking up where we left off. So everything Paul wrote is the background to these verses. You've got to remember that. Always try to remember that. I'll try to bring it out again. But everything that Paul wrote in Colossians is the background to these verses. So we pick up at verse 5. If you're looking for that in your blue Bible, it should be page 985. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that... He may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. What I've read to you from Proverbs and what I've read to you from Colossians, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, revive our hearts, good Lord, revive our hearts to be so freshly grabbed by your gospel gift that we happily become those with gospel engagements. Amen. You may be seated. So do you have your Bibles open there to Colossians chapter 4? Sermon notes are in the back of the worship guide. There's lots of space for notes there. And there's some questions for discussion for your care groups, maybe around dinner table today. Instead of roast preacher, you could have a roast sermon. I don't know, you know, whatever So once, long ago, in the 1980s, I was a bivocational minister, bivocational, I had two vocations. I was a full-time Air Force sergeant, and did that for 20 years, but I was a full-time Air Force sergeant in, at Homestead Air Force Base, Florida, and I, had, I was a part-time minister at a little church in Key Largo, Florida. And so back in the day, back in the mid-80s, radio call-in shows were a big item, and we had no idea how big Rush Limbaugh was going to turn it all into, right? We just had no idea. But it was a big item back then, and so I was working toward a Saturday evening religious call-in show that might generate some interest in our church in Key Largo, or maybe grow it and all those things so it led me into, into a conversation with another minister in our little sect, our little sect, uh, our group, who had once done a religious radio call-in show. And he told me something like this way back in the middle 80s. Mike, if you do it, if you do the radio call-in show, if you do it, never doubt the rightness of your position Ever. You have always got to be right and certain that you're right. And you have to make sure to tell everyone who's listening how right you really are. And if you ever voice your doubts, if there's ever any uncertainty, then you will lose your listener base. Wow, let that percolate in your brains for a bit. Always right. Telling everyone you're listening, who's listening to you that you're always right so that you can keep your listener base, because it's all about the listener base. Hmm. This is what is now being called grandstanding, where we present publicly in some way our great mental powers and our great moral superiority on the airwaves or social media or TV so that we can keep our following, we can keep our ratings up, we can keep our posse rallied and roused. But a Gospel-based alternative can be seen in this passage here in Colossians 4, verses 5, 6, and then the rest of this. But first, you've got to recall the flight path of Colossians and keep tracking with it. Here's the flight path. Colossians 1, the Gospel gift. Jesus freely offered to us in the Gospel. The Gospel gift brings us Gospel liberty, chapter 2, Verse 1 through chapter 3, verse 4, the gospel gift brings us gospel liberty, which then causes gospel leaving, chapter 3, 5 through 11, we put off, we put on, gospel leaving, which then launches us into gospel living, chapter 3, 12, really to the end of this letter is all about gospel living which would include, as you think about last week's sermon, gospel entreaty, chapter 4, verse 2 through 4, and now gospel engagement, chapter 4, 5 through 9, gospel engagement. So the first part of gospel engagement is walk and talk, and it's verse 5 and verse 6, walk and talk. Now Paul has just asked, back in verse 3 and 4, he has just asked for the Colossian believers to pray for him, Pray for him that he would find open doors and that he would be able to know how to communicate the Gospel as clear as possible to others. Verse 3 and 4. And now here in verse 5 and 6, he drafts the Colossian Christians into his situation. They're to be a part of these open doors and knowing how to communicate to others. They are, and we with them, are part of this make it clear how you ought to speak verse 4. And so all of that begins, this whole walk and talk section, begins verse 5 with walk. Look at the way the verse is written. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now in Colossians, we understand what wisdom means. If in Christ, in Christ is hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge then our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel gift that He is, is the very center, is the very heart of this wisdom that guides us in our relationships. Especially and even more so, well, specifically inside the sacred society, but also even outside the sacred society, outside the church. Walking wisdom toward those who are outside, the outsiders. Why? Well, because life is short. Making the best use of the time, he says. I tell young parents this all the time. I wish somebody had told us. Maybe they did and we were just idiots and didn't hear them, which is possible. But I always tell parents, especially when it's a tough season with your kids, please do not wish this time away. You will never, ever get it back. They grow up. So try to enjoy it as best you can. You know, but don't wish it away. Life is short. And so, life is short, and we only have so much time with most people. So, make the best use of it, Paul says. Walk in Christ shaped wisdom so that your engagements become gospel engagements. Now, by gospel engagements, it does include evangelistic presentations, no doubt. That's what Paul, part of what he had in mind. But it includes even other things. More than just a gospel presentation, it's actually an evangelistic, a gospel-shaped way of being. Right? So euangelion is a Greek word for gospel, evangelism. That's the root word for evangelism or evangelistic gospel. And so we live in a way that is actually gospel-shaped and gospel-grounded. And you go back to chapter 3, Verse 5 through 17, you can't miss it. This gospel engagement includes our being gospel grounded in a new way of being human. Putting off the paleon anthropon, the old way of being human, and putting on the neon anthropon, the new way of being human in Christ. Which means putting on a whole new way of being a society. We practice that in here a whole new way of being society, a whole new way of being community, and that then begins to spill over like your cup of coffee this morning, and that coffee spilled out, it begins to spill over into the way you live and walk with those who are outside. We begin treating others, even outsiders, in gospel-shaped ways. And this includes our talk. That's verse 6. Walk is verse 5. Talk is verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Notice what he says. Gracious speech. And you were paying attention very very intensely when I was reading Proverbs 16, so you know what that precludes. It's gracious speech, not slanderous speech. Not backbiting speech. Not demeaning speech. Not withering speech. Like we heard in Proverbs 16. Here's what a wise person does. Here's what a person who's been engraced does. They make their words persuasive. And it tastes like honey. It's attractive. And it's those who are fools who burn the house down and divide everybody under the sun, even the closest of friends. And so, notice that this gracious speech he says here is tasty. And I find this interesting because this goes along with what he says in Proverbs, what is said of Proverbs. It's tasty speech. Notice it's seasoned with salt. All right, who likes their bacon? By the way, Cindy Walton makes the best bacon wrapped asparagus ever. If she ever invites you over, go eat all you can, right? It's the best, right? But that bacon is wonderful because it's salted. Have you ever had bland, unsalted bacon? You don't eat very much of it, right? It's salted. It makes it tasty. Well, think about in Proverbs 16, what does honey do? Gracious words are like honey. What does honey do? It's tasty, right? It has that sweet, savory taste to it. Oh, interesting. Playing the same thing about in reference to gracious speech, but also salt is a preservative, right? We used to use salt all the time on our On our meats, as we would let it dry, we would dry it out, turn it into jerky, it would be salted to keep it preservative. Well, honey is a preservative too. I just saw an article the other day that Alexander the Great was was surprised back in 300 BC when he went to Persia and he found this plant-based purple dye, which should have gone bad. He found this plant-based purple dye, it was 200 years old, and the reason why it was still good is because it was preserved in honey. Honey is also preservative. Gracious speech is tasty. And gracious speech is preservative. That's what Paul says here. And So speech that is shaped and informed by gospel wisdom means that we have thought about what someone is asking and expressing. That's what he says here. So you may know how, to, how, you, ought to, how you ought to answer. It actually gives thought to what someone is asking and expressing. But notice he goes further. Gracious speech, gospel-grounded, wise speech, even puts thought into the person that you're answering. Even puts thought into the person you're answering. Listen to how he puts it. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Each person. Notice what Paul doesn't say, and Paul could have said this because he's, he could be good at this at times. He doesn't say that you may know how to answer each argument. Arguments are not personal. They're just things. People are persons, right? They're not things. requires a different approach when you're actually dealing with people instead of arguments. we could talk about all the different ways that this can be worked out, but I'm just going to use one. I'm just going to give you one illustrative example here. One way that this is done is by building a steel man, steel man argument. Now, you know what a straw man argument is, I'm sure. It's where you present the other person's most absurd rationale. This happens every presidential election season. You see it great, you know, it's always out there, right? It's setting up the other person's most absurd rationale so that you can set it up as the whole argument of your opponent, and that way it's easy to burn it down or blow it down like the big big bad wolf blew down the little pig's straw house, right? And it's down. It's a straw man argument. But that almost, almost never persuades anyone who disagrees with you. And the only people who actually are pleased with it is your posse, Right? They're gathered around you, they're on that side, and it only matters to them. It doesn't seem to persuade anyone. It's a way that we go out running around exhibiting our supposed mental powers and moral superiority, and it makes us feel good that we did that, but it doesn't do anyone any good. It makes us feel good, but it doesn't do anyone any good. On the other hand, is a steel man argument. The, Still the Man argument is where you actually listen. You listen to the other person. You listen so much so that you can actually represent their rationale and their position in such a way that they would actually say, yes, that's exactly what I was saying. That's exactly what I meant by that. You set it up. As uh, where you're representing their rationale and position in a way that they would agree it's their position, and then you would even present it in the best possible case with intentions before you respond to it. That's kind of what Paul's referring to, is you know how to answer each person. My friends, a great role model was Francis Schaefer. Francis Schaefer. Anybody remember Francis Schaefer? 1960s, 1970s, that's what made Lee Aubrey so powerful and potent in the day is that he didn't set up straw man arguments and burn them down and rant out on public media in some way, look how superior I am. He actually engaged with those who were, who were, um, who were doubters, who were drifters, who were even dissenters in this Colossians 4, verse 6 way, even including the steel man argument. Regrettably, if you didn't know this, regrettably, most of our engagements are highly opinionated, highly obstinate, and highly obstructionist. And they win no one. They win no one over. And they almost have no grace and are often lacking Christ-shaped wisdom. They actually sound more like the people Solomon was talking about in Proverbs 16 who start fires and burn the house down and who spread strife, even separating closest friends. And so, to pull verse 5 and 6 together, this whole walk and talk aspect, this Gospel-shaped aspect, I think Peter Kreeft, I brought the book and I forgot to bring it up here to the pulpit, but Peter Kreeft wrote a book called Before I Go. He was 70 years old when he wrote it. He wrote it for his adult children. He's like, look, I might die tomorrow, and these are the last things I want you to remember of me. Right? It's a really wonderful book. He's Roman Catholic, so I don't agree with everything he says, but there's some really deep wisdom in there. And he says this. As we speak, so we think. And as we think, so we live. And as we live, so we are. So if you care about what you are or who you are, if you care about who you are, care about how you speak. That's Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Walk and talk. But then Paul moves to the show and tell, and it's verses 7 through 9, show and tell. And notice that Paul is confined in prison. That's back in verse 3. He tells you he's in prison. He can't go anywhere. He's shackled down or whatever. He's under house arrest. Whatever it is, the situation he was in. But he's in a prison of some kind, a confinement. And he wants these believers at Colossae, who have never met him, he's never met them in person, to have a better sense of his own well-being and of his desires and a better sense of the details as they pray for him. Remember, he asked them to pray for him. And so, since he cannot personally come to them, he sends them to flesh and blood brothers. And he describes these brothers in verse 7 and in verse 9, these Christians in verse 7 and verse 9, he describes them in almost identical terms. He says of Tychicus, beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. And then he says of Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother is one of you. So what will they do? Well, notice verse 7 and then verse 9. They will report to the church at Colossae in person, in flesh and blood. They will report on Paul's activities. That's verse 7. And then they will tell them everything that has taken place here. Verse 9. It's all show and tell. Does anybody remember show and tell? Okay, thank you. Woo! Man. Have you ever seen the meme that talks about Presbyterians and Pentecostals, you know? A Presbyterian who's happy with a sermon? Pentecostal, who's angry at the sermon? right? Sometimes it feels that way. So I'm glad you said thank you. I appreciate you interacting with that. Yes, you know what show and tell is. It's all show and tell. But the main reason for this show and tell is verse 8. I have sent Him to you for this purpose, this very purpose, and it's actually listed with two that words. That and that. That you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Paul sends real live flesh and blood brothers to come in person to show and tell so that they will get the information. They will know um, things about Paul that just cannot be properly broadcast in a post or a letter. Has anybody ever misread a text or an email? Do you know why you misread it? Because you don't have any clue what the tone of voice was because you didn't hear it. You don't have an idea if they're being funny, sarcastic because that eyebrow twitched up. All you have is these cold, lifeless words sitting on a screen and you misread them all the time. And if you've got any presence of mind, you stop before you fire off that nasty email back and you think, maybe I misread this, right? Right? And notice that Paul recognizes they could be misreading his letter. Because he actually was pretty stern with them in chapter 2, and it might be that they misunderstood his real sentiment and his real intention. And so he sends them real live flesh and blood show and tell brothers who will be able to come in and tell them more of what's happening with Paul and the body language and tone of voice and facial expressions will all be there. Can you imagine this moment? Oh, yeah, Paul. Yeah, you asked about Paul. Well, Paul's doing great. Um, Yeah, he's doing great. I mean, liar! You know, the body is going to show and emphasize the very words. The value of flesh and blood, show and tell, in person, present. So they need more information that can be properly broadcast in a post or letter. And this presence that is needed is needed because of the body language, the tone of voice, the raised eyebrow, the facial expressions that go with the detail. But more, notice that Paul wants them to be encouraged. As I said, it's possible that reading Colossians, these Colossian Christians, reading this letter up to this point, it might leave them feeling as if they've been beaten down. And Paul cares about them. Even though he's never met them, he cares about them. And so he sends real flesh and blood brothers to come and help them fathom Paul's intentions so that they will be filled with courage. That's what it means to encourage. Fill with courage. So they will be filled with courage. Paul recognizes that to cheer them it will require far more than paper and ink or texts and tweets. It calls for personal flesh and blood presence. And you hear the same sentiment when you come to the uh, 2 John and 3 John, John's two shortest letters, 2 John and 3 John, where he ends both of those letters this way. Here's from 2 John, verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And he ends 3 John in a similar way. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. And we will talk face to face. Show and tell is far better than send and tell, text and tell, post and tell. And if Christ, think of the Incarnation for a moment, if God actually has come to us in person, in flesh and blood, if Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, has now reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death, in whom dwells all the fullness of God bodily, if He is intruded into our time and space with personal flesh and blood presence, then the gospel shapes even our verbal engagement with believers. We will want to actually be in their presence and work together in their presence. Now, that doesn't mean you need to stop sending those texts that are encouraging and emails that are encouraging and cards that are encouraging. No, don't stop that. It's just a reminder that as heartening and as cheering as those things can be, personal presence Show and tell presence is far better. And it's, and it's part of our gospel engagement with one another. I remember years and years ago, uh, before we went to Turkey, we went, uh, so this was in 1981, 19, yeah, 1980. Ann and I went to a local church because they were having a family seminar. And it was one of those, I'm dating myself here. It was one of those real to reel movies, right? The ones that like to melt in the middle and then flop, 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 flop. And it was James Dobson. Right, And the only thing I remember out of all that series was this. Is he, James Dobson said, he said, kids, your kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Your kids spell love, T-I-M-E. I think that's probably true with my wife, too. And, her, and me, We spell love, T-I-M-E, time, presence. That's what Paul's doing here. So let me do some applications here before we move further. Let me give you two. First off, my friends, I'm speaking to a commuter church, if you didn't know that, where all of our congregants are spread from Elk City to Midwest City, from Guthrie down to Moore. Right? That's a lot of driving. Most of you, or a good portion of you, have to devote an hour time just to come to church and go home. That's an hour investment. Some of you from Elk City, it's like three hours, right? Yeah, it's like a three-hour round trip or something like that. We spend a lot, and that's that's a commuter church. We live far, far away. And so, as you think about this flesh and blood show and tell, it should take our hearts with some renewed vigor how can we as a commuter church be more engaged with one another more show and tell time with each other in flesh and blood presence it doesn't have to be here it could be you know whatever but how can we do that now look i know where i am okay i am an extrovert with a capital e in bold i don't I know that shocks some of you right i am an extrovert during covid those memes were right Check on your extrovert friends. They're not well. I was not well. But there's a huge number here. and This is not shaming anyone. There's a huge number here who are mildly extrovert and mildly introvert. And as soon as I said we need to get together more, you probably went. And then there's a large number of you who are truly introverts, which is fine. But you heard me say that and you went. Ah!" Right? So we have to think about how can we do this because we like being together. We should like to be together. Being in physical presence with one another is a gospel shaped thing to do. So there's the first thing. As you think about Tychicus and Onesimus and the fact that Paul would take the pain of sending real live people to this church, here's the second thing. By the way, I'll have more to say on that tonight. It just happened to fit in with this evening's sermon as we're continuing to learn to pray with Paul, and we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians 3, through 13 That's at 6 tonight. Love to see everyone here, if we could. Here's the second thing to consider, and it goes in a totally different direction. And I'll try to pull this off. I hope it works. Robert Leckie wrote a book called Helmet for A Helmet for My Pillow. It's one of the books that the HBO series The Pacific is based upon. It's his real-life story of being in the Pacific. At the beginning of the story, he talks about right after Pearl Harbor, within two months, he was part of a bunch of new raw recruits, and they were herded onto cattle cars, onto trains, because that was the easiest way to move a mass of humanity, right? To go to Marine Corps boot camp. And while they were in the cattle car, he noticed, because it went on for hours, I mean it went from day to night to the next day, they were in there for hours. What he noticed was that there was a guy over there named Red, because he was redheaded. Red got red. Red. Red was a pro baseball catcher. He'd been a pro baseball catcher for one season, and what he thought was interesting is that every all these young men on the train gathered around Red and started asking Red war strategy questions. Are, are you already picking up something's wrong here? They were asking him how the Japanese would be able. How could we beat the Japanese? They were asking him all of these questions of a guy who was only had only his only claim to fame is that he'd been a pro baseball catcher. And so Lecky comes up with this observation. He says this. It's an American weakness. The success, Red was a success in one area, the success becomes the sage. The success becomes the sage. The American weakness, he actually goes on from that in his book and he gives some examples. But I find that interesting because that weakness is still with us. And now with social media and a click of a button, there are a lot of sages out there. You know what I'm talking about? Tons of them. Bazillions of them. It's a weakness that we have and now it is bigger than it's ever been. You can see how it's taken over when people hold podcasters, YouTube pundits, and parenting advisors whom they have never met and they have no idea how their kids grew grew up. They take all of them as credible experts and they give zero credibility to people in their church whom they see and whose kids they watch grow up and whom they watched live through catastrophes and struggles. They give no credibility here. They put all credibility out there. The the success becomes the sage. Notice how Paul sends flesh and blood brothers. He didn't have to. He could have said, I wrote it all, you figure it out. He sent flesh and blood brothers. Because presence is extremely important. Show and tell. Far better. But then, my friends, to the attuned and the sharper readers, there comes a surprising catch and release innuendo and it's part of our Gospel engagement. And you see it there when you're looking at verse 9. Verse 9. Who's verse 9 talking about? Onesimus! And it appears that Onesimus is Philemon's runaway slave so you have to go back and read that 25 verse letter to philemon That that was his runaway slave who has now been converted and has been under paul's tutelage in fact if you look down at verse 17 archippus will be mentioned and will be challenged to fulfill his ministry well archippus was the minister of the church that met in philemon's house And so I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with John Calvin. I don't do it very often, but I'm going to do it here. Who said there's no way that this Anisimus could have been that slave. Because no one would use such a person to verify and validate their letter. And I find what Paul just did here Amazing. It is gospel-shaped more than most of us recognize. To see how this runaway slave is now heading back to his master as a brother, and Paul considers him faithful and beloved. And in this act, he is presenting Onesimus who is part of the validating of this letter and all of that, he is presenting Onesimus as a model of some of what he called the Christian slaves to do back in chapter 3, verse 22 through 25. And Paul himself and what he is doing here is modeling some of the things he was calling on the Christian masters to do in chapter 4, verse 1. Do that which is fair and just. My friends, if you don't get it, let me just say it. The seeds of emancipation were really, truly, honestly being sown by word and deed. And you can see it even in the little subtle things that Paul was doing. Now, if you want to get more out of this, and I would love it if you did, I would encourage you to go listen to the sermon that I preached on Philemon. if you say, well, where is that at? Glad you asked. I put the address in the sermon notes. So you can go listen to it. And you'll get more of the story where I look at Philemon specifically. But I want you to notice that Gospel engagement can and it should bring about catch and release, so to speak. This brother has been fully embraced by the Gospel and by the Apostle Paul. And the proof is that the entrusted place Paul puts Onesimus into. And instead of holding Onesimus's past against him and his past status over his head to keep him in his place, Paul entrusts Onesimus. And Onesimus is beginning to prove himself trustworthy. Notice how the Gospel impacts even the engagements of our social systems, our legal arrangements, and our personal perspectives. Lots of things we could go on to say. But let me end with a tidy summary. The gospel gift puts us into gospel engagements, which encompass our walk and talk but also our flesh and blood show and tell presence and it impacts our social systems, our legal arrangements and our personal perspectives. Gospel engagements. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You so much for caring about how we talk. Help us, Lord, Lord, by your grace alone and Christ alone, freely offered to us in the gospel, may we be a people known as walkers in gospel shaped wisdom toward outsiders and those whose speech is always gracious. Lord, grow us together, draw us together, and ignite in our hearts a greater desire to be together. I remember Heritage's history. I remember when Steve Childers, I remember the stories when Steve was here and people gathered around, there was Jeannie Stidle and others, and they all got together to eat. How important and substantive that was in our own congregation's history. Lord, help us that we would triumph over commuterism (laughs) and grow in this show-and-tell, flesh-and-blood, gospel presence with one another. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your holy word that speaks to us, that guides us, that shapes us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who makes us alive to your word. And now be with us as we come to the Lord's Supper in Jesus' name. Amen.